Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. I, I won't start exactly on time because um, <laughs> but the joke is in the church parking lot, you have to be nice to everybody, right, as you get cut off and all kinds of things. <clears throat> in our family, we joke that the closer you get to the church, uh, the more you have to be very kind as a driver because the odds of it being somebody you're going to worship next to go up <laughs> significantly. But praise the Lord for a parking lot that we're trying to uh, maneuver around in, and um, so I'm thankful for that. So, uh, welcome to all who are normally in John's class. Um, sorry that he's not feeling well today, but we will uh, spend some good time in the Word of God today. We're going to be in Psalm 6, but don't go there yet. We're going to start in another passage, but I'll pray for our day and for our morning, and then we'll get going together. Our Father, what a delightful day. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is a day that we, Lord willing, are able to set aside to worship you, to think on things that are heavenly, to think on Christ, to learn and to grow, to be reminded that we are aliens and strangers in a foreign land, to be reminded that we don't belong here and yet we are here at your, at your mission to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. We are compelled to grow and to learn, to grow in the knowledge of Christ, and I pray that that would be the result of this day. I pray that our time this morning to, I suppose, sort of warm us up as worshipers to guide our thoughts toward you. I pray it would be effective for all of us here, and it would be pleasing to you. And We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to actually start in Hebrews chapter 12. So you might turn there. I'm going to just read a familiar passage. Then we will go to Psalm 6. I, I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am, but the, every week getting to just dive into the next psalm has been such a delight for me, and I, I pray that today is the same for you. So I want to just begin by reading this very familiar passage from Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read from verse 5 through verse 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our benefit so that we may share his holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the writer of Hebrews here makes it very clear that the Lord disciplines and he chastises. It's a word that means to train or to educate. And I love that the uh, Legacy Standard Version stays true to, to the 
Greek meaning he flogs every son whom he receives. Uh, Most English translations are pretty hesitant to use that word, but that's what the word means. It's discipline that's severe, that's painful. But what's the result? At the end of verse 11, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, the idea of the discipline of the Lord, this is actually quite a debate in the church. It's, it's a debate at several levels. Uh, there's a debate about church discipline itself uh, as whether that is something that is for, uh, you, you can't come to our church anymore or you can't go to any church anymore. And, and I don't have time for this, but I could make the case that dis- church discipline is a heavenly act that says you're not part of the church universal anywhere on earth until you repent. Um, that's a separate debate. Within individuals, the idea of God's discipline is very, very touchy. And how does this go? Well, and I have heard this, I have witnessed this, one Christian telling another who's suffering, well, God is clearly disciplining you. Well, how do you know that? Or what happens maybe more often in sort of slanderous mode, somebody asserts to a third party, God is clearly disciplining him. There's only one way you can actually know that when somebody is under church discipline. That's when God, you know, is disciplining someone. When that said, God is clearly disciplining him or God is clearly disciplining you, it's really said in a tone that reveals a lack of understanding of what we just read in Hebrews 12. It's a tone that reveals a belief that so-called good Christians are not disciplined by the Lord and the wayward Christians are, that we have the two groups. But Hebrews 12 makes it very clear. Verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And verse 8, if you're without discipline of which all become partakers, you're illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, the professing Christian who says, you know, I really have never had a time in my life ever where I felt like the Lord is, is really hammering on me. You ought to question your faith. So it's very clear. And I suppose that when we suffer, that is one of our major concerns. Are we under the discipline of the Lord or is this just pain that's as a result of living in a sinful world with a broken body surrounded by broken people? I, for one, uh, find myself struggling with jealousy of one man in particular. The one I'm particularly jealous of at times is King David. Because whenever his suffering is the result of the discipline of the Lord, a prophet of God comes and tells him, this is the discipline of the Lord. It's like, okay, at least we're cut and dried here. I want to present what I believe is really a completely different and alternative way of thinking, and I I believe Psalm 6 is going to help us with this. The passage in Hebrews 12 is very paradoxical. It's ironic in this particular way. It speaks of discipline. It even speaks of the flogging of the Lord, the whipping of the Lord. And yet it manages to come across in tones of positivity. It's positive. Listen to the positive words I read. The Lord loves, the Lord receives. We live when we're subject to our Father in heaven. He disciplines for our benefit. We're trained by it. We see the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so bearing in mind that discipline comes to every one of God's people who are in Christ and the the longest New Testament passage on 
church discipline, or rather on God's discipline, is overwhelmingly positive about it, where does that leave you? Where does that leave me? How does that help us determine if God is disciplining us or not? Well, I would submit that this is the wrong question. Is God disciplining me is the wrong question. Because that question is, maybe in some small way, if you would guard your own heart and think about this, an attempt to self-justify, to say, oh, certainly this can't be the discipline of the Lord. Certainly he wouldn't care about my sanctification enough to make me suffer in anguish. He wouldn't do that. And so I think that's the wrong question. Is God disciplining me? The more useful question is, assuming that God is disciplining me, how can I respond in humility? That's the right question. Assuming God is disciplining me, how shall I respond in humility? And I want you to think about this as well. We tend to think of the Lord's discipline in terms of short spurts of pain that that are very well defined. My discipline from the Lord began on April 14th and it ended on October 7th and that, that sort of thing. And that may be so in many cases. But I point out that we ought to ask the question in Hebrews 12, what does the writer mean by the short time in verse 10 and for the moment in verse 11? Well, the fact that the result of discipline in verse 9 is that we live, what does that mean? It means that we're confirmed, we're sanctified as true children of God. It seems to indicate that some suffering may be for a lifetime. That some suffering, as you continue to receive it with faithfulness and joy and humility, according to 1 Peter 1, that's actually confirmation of your faith. It's actually confirmation of your faith. I, I think the younger you are, the easier it is to think in terms of uh, of pain as being in a specific time period. And unfortunately, charismatic churches uh, perpetuate this, that if you'll just have enough faith, this time of anguish will come to an end. Well, when, when you're in the hospital and there is no hope and you are dying, all that false theology goes out the window, right? Now it's, I'm going to walk through this in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Uh, there, I, I have known of Christians who have said, I have a terminal illness and my final goal in this life is to die well and to show people what it means to trust the Lord. So maybe it's a misnomer to say, well, the discipline of the Lord happens in these little short spurts. Sometimes it does, not always. But I really wouldn't worry about that. The best question is, assuming this is God's discipline, how shall I respond in humility? As much as I would like to just teach through the passage we just did in Hebrews 12, that's not my focus today. I want to focus on one humble response, though. One humble response to the Lord's discipline, and this is one that produces joy. And that's my theme this morning. I'd like to talk about the joy of confession. The joy of confession. Now we can go to Psalm 6. And in Psalm 6, we're going to see joy of confession. Now, the most likely scenario, which is the backdrop to Psalm 6, is David's dual sins of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. And these are uh, recorded in 2 Samuel. Why is this the scenario? Well, almost certainly it's a scenario because we put some little pieces of evidence together. First of all, Psalm 6 is a penitential psalm. It's a psalm of confession. That alone doesn't prove that this is the situation, but it is a psalm of David. 
it's weighty to the level of terrible sins against the Lord. This, if you read, as we read through Psalm 6, this isn't the idea of, well, I, you know, I said a harsh word to my friend and I just need to go apologize. No, this is something that's making him physically ill. We also see similarities to Psalms 32, 38, and 51. Those are all penitential, all Psalms of David. And particularly, Psalm 51, there are some, uh, some uh, parallel structures here. And Psalm 51, very clearly, we know, is the official confession of David after the Bathsheba and Uriah incidents. There's a theme that shows up in all four of those, 32, 38, 51, and here in Psalm 6. Interestingly, and that is the theme of David's bones. And I'm going to spend more time talking about that. So you put all that together. And I'm going to make the case a little bit later that Psalm 6 is actually the, the precursor. It's the forerunner of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the official confession of David concerning Bathsheba and Uriah. But in Psalm 6, it's a precursor. Because there's a struggling that happens with David. He's still wrestling with this sin. He's, he's not confessed his sin yet. This is probably the point where he begins doing that. So there's a struggle here. And I'll, I'll try to make that case a little bit later. But I'd like to use this Psalm of David to talk about the joy of confession and to divide our thoughts. We're going to make this very easy. I want to give you seven joys of confessing sin. Seven joys of confessing sin. Psalm 6. It's for the choir director with stringed instruments according to the Shemineth. A psalm of David. O Yahweh, do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Yahweh, how long? Return, O Yahweh, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there is no remembrance of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back and they will suddenly be ashamed. Now, just to point out here, David begins the psalm ashamed and dismayed. And then he ends it by saying, that's what my enemies will be. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. So seven joys of confession. The first joy of confession is God's pleasure. God's pleasure. Now, the the majority of this psalm is very negative and I've turned it around to be positive uh, just because that's, uh, I think, more encouraging to us. God's pleasure. Verse 1, O Yahweh, do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. What's he doing here? Very simply, David is asking for mercy instead of justice. He's, he's asking, can you give me what I don't deserve, which is mercy, instead of giving me what I do deserve, which is total justice. And I think it's important to note that David never denies that he deserves the anger of God. He never claims innocence. In this case, the word wrath, this isn't speaking of eternal wrath, eternal punishment of sin, but he's speaking of discipline for sin that just feels like the wrath of God. It feels so bad to him. 
In fact, 2 Samuel 12, 15 stings with the rebuke of God. Just listen to the way it's phrased. 2 Samuel 12, 15, Nathan went to his house. Nathan is the prophet that that decreed David's sin to him or, or declared it to him. Then Yahweh smote the child that Uriah's wife bore to David so that he was very sick. Ouch. What a reminder. Uriah, the man I murdered, his wife that I stole. And during the baby's illness, David refused to eat. He refused to get off the ground. But when the child died, when David's discipline was complete, so to speak, 2 Samuel 12, 20 records that David went to the house of the Lord. This is the tabernacle. The temple wasn't yet built and he worshiped. And what does it mean to worship? Whenever David would go to worship, that means he offered sacrifices. He offered probably sin offerings, burnt offerings. So relationship was restored. The pleasure of God with David was there once again. It is extremely pleasing to the Lord to confess sin. And conversely, it's angering to the Lord to pridefully refuse to do so. And we've talked about this before, but to say, well, I've examined my own heart and I don't see any sin there. Well, how about confessing the sin of examining your own heart and not seeing any sin there? That's a good place to start. In confession, there's restoration, there's grace, there's peace, there's forgiveness. Listen, if you confess sin that you didn't commit, then God will probably forgive you of that. If you don't confess sin that you did commit, then God has a problem. We're reminded in Hebrews 4.16 to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We're reminded in Isaiah 1.18 where the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. So the first joy of confession is God's pleasure. You, you receive God's pleasure. It's the second joy of confession. Renewed strength. Renewed strength. Verse 2, be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed. Some scholars have taken Psalm 6 as simply a response to a physical illness without reference to sin. That, you know, David has the flu or he has some horrible illness and that he's simply asking for the Lord to to be merciful to him. Uh, I don't doubt that his body is doing something bad, but this is not the picture of just being ill. This is not just the picture of of being down physically. This is speaking of the physical toll of unconfessed sin, that it takes a toll on the body. In Psalm 32, David expresses it this way. We saw in Psalm or in verse 2 here, my bones are dismayed. He mentions this again in Psalm 32, and I think this is even clearer in verses 3 and 4, when I kept silent about my sin. Did you catch that? When I kept silent about my sin... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. So my bones are dismayed. My bones wasting away. This is a clear reference to just being physically down. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, unconfessed sin seems to be associated with a physical toll on the body. Either it's the natural consequences of guilt or because it's a direct act of God himself. Paul told the church at Corinth that some of them were sick because of unrepentant sin. In fact, some of them were dying. He said in 1 Corinthians 11.30, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and the number sleep. James tells the sick person in the church, 
to call the elders of the church to pray for him, not because elders' prayers are somehow magical, that's not the point, but because this sick person is in unrepentant sin, most likely under church discipline. James 5.14, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's not anything magical or mystical. That's simply giving medicine and and being kind, uh, graciousness. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Here's the key. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, the big question always seems to be, if I am sick or suffering, does that mean I need to confess sin? Is that the issue? Well, to be very clear, only you can determine that. Really, that's, that's, a, that's a matter between you and the Lord. But I can say that it means that confession of sin ought to be a high priority. It ought to be a high priority. That at the very least, the time of suffering ought to engender some serious self-examination. And we can kind of go on two uh, ends of the spectrum here. On one end of the spectrum, it's legalistic to assume that every single time you're sick, God is punishing you for something. That's, that's legalistic. That will drive you crazy. On the other end of the spectrum, though, it's arrogant to assume that every single time you're sick, it has nothing to do with your need to confess sin. So the truth is somewhere in between, and it's between you and the Lord. And for me and my part, I want to use times where I'm down as a time of self-examination, a time of confession. Why not? It's not going to hurt you any. The first joy of confession, God's pleasure. Second joy, renewed strength. The third joy, emotional peacefulness. Emotional peacefulness. Verse 3. And my soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Yahweh, how long... David says his soul is greatly dismayed. This is a powerful word. It's a word that means to be horrified and to be out of your mind. We all know what that means, right? What what does that mean? It means where you can't run from your own thoughts, where you're so distracted that everything you do, everything you say, everything you think has a background to it. I've heard people describe this, that you, that you feel like your mind is split, that the half of your mind is always thinking about this problem, and the other half is trying to just live your normal life, and that's very, very difficult. It's, it's stressful. It's like music to a horror movie that's going on in the background in your brain all the time. And so David asks, how long will his soul be horrified? How long will he be out of his mind? You know what the answer is? As long as it takes you to confess. That's the answer. I want to remind you of this. We touched on it briefly in my message on fasting this past Lord's Day. Confession to the sin, confession of sin is something I believe in the church is wrongly taught as something to get over with quickly, to just rip the band-aid off. It's something that we spend 10 seconds in prayer, Lord, please forgive me for all my sins. Now going on to all of my requests, I don't think that's a biblical approach. It's certainly not what we see in Scripture Confession of sin is often portrayed as something to be as quick and painless as possible. Now, aside from the likely disingenuousness of that sort of attitude, it doesn't give you the benefits that confession can give. Remember that in Scripture, confession of sin to the Lord is something that you prepare for. It's often prepared for. 
Daniel read in the prophet Jeremiah that the time of Israel's exile was all, almost done. And so in Daniel 9.3, I gave my face to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Why was Daniel in this mode of being down, sackcloth, ashes, fasting? Because he's about to confess sin on Israel's behalf. Years later, the returned exiles back in Israel prepared to confess sin. Nehemiah 9, now in the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel gathered with fasting and sackcloth with dirt upon them. The seed of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Side note, what, what did they do? Separated themselves from all foreigners. They rightly assessed it would be really dumb to continue sinning against God while we're preparing to confess sin. That confession and repentance go together. And then we mentioned last week Jonah 3 records the people of Nineveh believing that God uh, has spoken to them through Jonah. And they responded to Jonah's message. And they declared a time of fasting from both food and water, not in order to repent, but to prepare to repent, to prepare for confession. I, I think that's lost on us to say that at, at uh, 8 o'clock this morning, I'm going to confess sin to the Lord. And I'm going to spend an hour in prayer beforehand Preparing to confess. That's very odd to us, but I think it's very biblical. Now, I brought those three examples back because if you read the text, do you know what comes after each one of those confessions with Daniel, with Nehemiah, and the people of Nineveh? Each time you have a record of joy. That joy comes as a result of that confession. God's pleasure, renewed strength, emotional peacefulness. Here's a fourth Joy of confession. Covenant reminder. Covenant reminder. Verse 4. David says, Return, O Yahweh. Rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. What's the reason that God gives to rescue him from his sin? To, to forgive him. God's loving kindness. God's chesed. It's his loyal covenant-keeping love. In the uh, Legacy Standard Bible, in the Old Testament... Almost every time you see this word, and it's an invented word, loving kindness, this is in the context of covenant love, that God loves because he's a covenant-keeping God. You ever feel like that if you confess your sin one more time to the Lord, particularly if it's the same one over and over and over again, you ever feel like one day you'll just get the sense that God is sick and tired of hearing it? that you're going to have that feeling like you're praying to the ceiling. It's important to be careful not to assign a human trait to God. That is somehow that there's a limit of patience and grace. Now, obviously, we agree with the Apostle Paul who said in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? But we also remember, listen carefully, that God's covenant to you is not contingent on your obedience. His covenant with you isn't contingent on your sanctification. It's not contingent on that. Justification is yours. It belongs to you. Sanctification ought to be yours in an increasing manner, but sanctification doesn't impact justification. Justification is a once-for-all transaction based on the covenant faithfulness of God. My favorite hymn, well, actually, actually it tied for my favorite, uh, my favorite hymn in our hymnal is the hymn by R.C. Sproul, These Great Things. 
And it has a line in the fourth verse that's so comforting. First he did choose and called, and he then surely to justify. For those of the faith beyond our kin, K-E-N, he soon will glorify. Kin, K-E-N, it's a Scottish word. It means to have knowledge. In other words, and the, the main phrase is the one reflected in the hymn, that such and such is beyond my kin. It's beyond my ability to know. What does he say? The, the hymn says that to know those who are truly of the faith, who are truly regenerate, is beyond our kin. It's beyond our knowledge. It's beyond our ability to know. But God knows, and God will justify every single child that's his. Every child, every person of the elect is justified. And this is why the chorus so gloriously sings, What shall we say to these great things of mystery sublime, that if he is for us, we can sing now and for all time. I love that because that's covenant love. God keeping his covenant with us. God's pleasure, renewed strength, emotional peacefulness, covenant reminder. Here's a a fifth joy of confession. Determined worship. Determined worship. I I love this logic that David gives to the Lord. Verse 5, For there is no remembrance of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? Now, David makes his case based on worship. And, And I want you to keep something in mind. This is harder for us to grasp at times, I think. For the faithful Jew... Worshiping God was primarily thought of as something that happens on earth. It is an earthly thing that you do. They, they did have a theology of heaven, but it wasn't nearly as developed as ours. For the Jew, heaven is on earth. Heaven is when God is bringing a kingdom where we have peace in our land and we can have our own vineyard and our own fig tree and, and just build our own houses and be with our families and we can worship the Lord. That's heaven to the Jew. So David's rationale is, if you continue my discipline all the way to my death, how can you receive my worship? How can I go to the temple? I can't go to the temple when I'm in the tomb down the street. I can only go if I'm alive. It's very important to keep this axiom, keep this principle in mind. Known, unconfessed sin makes true worship of God impossible. It makes it impossible. Oh, you can fake it. You can show up to church. You can sing songs. Uh, you can gather with God's people. You can even think you're worshiping. Uh, I, I, I feel like it's one of my passions in life to correct false notions of worship. And here's one of them. Worship is only worship if God receives it. You, you can't just say, well, I'm worshiping God. The question is, well, why is he receiving it? Worship is only worship if God receives it. And God never receives worship from unclean hearts. He never does. This is the pattern in the Old Testament. This is the pattern in the New Testament. You want to truly get the most out of the Lord's Day? Spend a little time on Saturday evening confessing sin in prayer. And I know during our worship service we have a little confession time on Sunday mornings. That's that's barely enough time to confess everything you did since you woke up. Maybe it's better to have a more serious attitude. But if you'll keep clearly in mind that the relationship between confession and accepted worship is is a parallel relationship, then your worship will be intentional, it will be determined, it will be pure. 
And why can we continue to confess our sin? Because of the cross. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, that forgiveness is always available. All these joys, God's pleasure, renewed strength, emotional peacefulness, covenant reminder, determined worship. Here's a sixth joy I'll call spiritual vitality. Spiritual vitality. Verse 6, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with my tears. And this is, a, this is hyperbole. This is a, a, an exaggeration that David's weeping so much that he's like he's flooding the room that he's in. Now, this is why I believe that David is remembering and outlining a time prior to his confession of sin, before he confessed sin. Because remember that in both Psalm 3 and 4, David is being oppressed. He's being threatened by an outside force, Absalom and his army. And what did David do in both Psalm 3 and 4? He slept peacefully. Here, he's not sleeping. And the only real enemy is in his own heart, his unconfessed sin. He's sleepless. He's, in fact, tortured. Verse 7 My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. His eyes are swollen because he's constantly weeping and he's not sleeping. He's a very emotional man. He's feeling grief on a level that's really difficult for us to imagine. If this is a time describing his unconfessed sin, what he is carrying in his heart is the knowledge that he stole another man's wife He had sex with another man's wife. He had a child by another man's wife. And he murdered the other man. And he's carrying that all by himself. Hidden sin causes anguish. It causes spiritual weakness. I remember as a college student in 1987 hearing a story of a man named Gordon McDonald. Gordon McDonald was a Christian author and at the time, he was the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And he confessed to the board of directors of InterVarsity that he had engaged in an adulterous affair in late 1984 and early 1985, over a period of several months. His wife, Gail, was with him when he made this confession. And they had actually begun the process of restoring their marriage and working through repentance and forgiveness in, in what I could sense was a very godly fashion. But because the rumors began to circulate everywhere, he rightly stepped down. He asked for forgiveness in very humble and quiet terms. But I remember hearing an interview with him and his wife, Gail, on the radio after this. Sometime after he stepped down, and his wife was with him at the interview. And the, the interviewer asked Gail, how did you find out? How did you learn of the affair? And her answer was that her husband wasn't sleeping, He was downcast, he was depressed, he was clearly bothered, he wouldn't make eye contact, he was internally tortured by something until she finally just sat him down and just said, just tell me, just tell me. But confession brings back spiritual vitality. And one of the things that Gordon MacDonald confessed to, or or attested to rather, was that once he had confessed his sin to the Lord, to his wife, to the board of directors, that he was just spiritually lifted to a place of a vital union with the Lord once again. Let me give you one more joy of confession, and that is heavenly confidence. Heavenly confidence. Now there's a shift. Verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, 
For Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will be suddenly, they will suddenly be ashamed. Now this is the sign of a man confident that he's right with the Lord. That he's in the right spot with the Lord. Who are the enemies that David is speaking of here? It's likely all of those who mocked him and oppressed him because this is very public sin. His sin became known publicly. And so certainly uh, in God's providence, he allowed David's enemies uh, to come out of the woodwork when this uh, aha moment happened. By the way, God does use the natural animosity of enemies as part of his discipline, and yet he judges their eagerness to come against God's people. Habakkuk 2, God will judge, judge the Babylonians because they came against Israel, even though God decreed that the Babylonians come against Israel. Isaiah chapter 10, God will punish the Assyrians because they came against Israel, even though God decreed that the Assyrians would come against Israel. So we, we notice the sovereignty of God in here. But I, I want to point this out. You see this sudden shift, this confidence. In verses 8 and 9, three times David asserts, God has heard my prayer, he's heard my prayer, he's heard my prayer. Confession gives heavenly confidence that all is right and God is your defender. And boy, we need that confidence. Now, David had to continue with the consequences of his sin. He would never see his baby boy again in this lifetime. He would lose the trust of many, but now his vitality, his confidence in the Lord is fully restored. Now he's able to look ahead to final vindication that all who mock him will eventually know that David is right with God. Boy, isn't that the glory of the gospel? That when you fall, that when you have need of confession of sin, if there's somebody who says, aha, you're not that quote-unquote perfect Christian, or you're the hypocrite, and when they begin mocking you, you still can stand on Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And even in some cases, when, when people mock, uh, mock us and say that, uh, well, you can't even be saved, you know, before the Influencers Conference, I got three emails from people saying, you're not a Christian because you're calling out this error. It's like, all right, that's fine. But when you see me in heaven and I'm going, yeah, like that, I'm here. That's vindication. It's yeah in Jesus' name because we're all together at that point, right? But David's confidence is, I don't have to listen to you anymore because my sin is confessed. And to put a New Testament term on it, there is no condemnation for me anymore. There's none. One more time. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. I pray that all of you, that all of us find joy in confession. That's where true joy is. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a delight it is to begin our time in this beautiful short psalm where we get insight into King David and his time of really wrestling with his own sin before he fully gave in to simply confessing and humbling himself. We see all the terrible consequences of him carrying this guilt. But we as Christians are comforted by Hebrews 4.16 that we may come boldly to the throne of grace, eagerly to the throne of grace. And at your throne of grace, we find help, we find grace in the time of our need. I pray for each person here, Lord, that we would be those 
that quickly confess sin to one another when necessary and to you at all times. May that be a lifestyle for us, Lord, of, of not letting things pile up, acknowledging that we live in a sinful world and that we struggle with our own sin nature, but to keep those lines of communication continually open for you will always forgive, you always restore, you always give grace. We thank you and we praise you for the grace given to us through Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.